0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In
1: 1989, a monster was let loose on the eastern side of Canada. His name was Alan Legree, and he caused mayhem, panic, and death in his wake. You see, Alan escaped from prison and was on the run from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but for months he evaded them, leaving the citizens of the Miramichi area to wonder if they would be his next victim. This is the story of the Miramichi monster. My name's Ben.
2: And I'm Nicole, and you're listening to Wicked and Grim.
1: A true crime podcast. We are uh, live on video too. Yeah. We're recording both audio and video form of this podcast now, all within our tiny home.
2: This feels really fancy. It feels
1: weird that... (laughs) I don't know. People are going to be like watching with their eyes now.
2: I know because I'm almost kind of wondering if I'm sitting proper or doing like I'm going to be doing something weird for sure. Throughout oh, the show.
1: I know for sure. I don't sit proper and it's because of the the spot in our tiny home because we're on our counter. And if you guys are watching the video, like right here, there's no leg room for me to bump up against. So my one knee is jammed into the counter. So I typically am hunched a bit.
2: Yeah. And I didn't quite realize it was that bad until you got me to test.
1: To sit there for the to camera sit
2: there so you could like focus on me
1: oh yeah no i yeah. totally gave you the good side of the camera you
2: really did thank you
1: you're welcome i appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> um we got to thank our patrons though before we really start just yammering about a bunch of stuff so over on patreon we have some behind the scenes content we have uh an extra episode at the end of the month and we had three people sign up this week so we have uh julian santos Leda, jerez and gill they all signed up to be patrons and they're supporting us over there so thank you very much you guys we appreciate that
2: that's freaking awesome it is so awesome
1: um but this is going to be a heavy case well not heavy well it's heavy there there's there's murder there's i mean aren't they all aren't they all exactly (laughs) but this is a in-depth case
2: okay The last one was pretty in-depth, though, too. It was. You're really picking these heavy cases. Apparently,
1: I am. I don't know what's (laughs) wrong with me lately, but I just really want to do these deep dives, apparently. Um, And I'm trying to avoid doing two-parters for you guys because we recently did a couple.
2: And we're just like, what is it called? Sending it?
1: We're just a full send.
2: Full send. Full send. There you go. (laughs) Oh, oh, fuck yeah, bud.
1: (laughs) Okay. So let's dive into this because it's a gooder.
2: Okay. Let's do it.
1: Okay. I got to. Because I'm an old man, I got to increase my font size so I can actually read my script properly.
2: Well, remember, we've talked about this before. You still have yet to go get glasses.
1: I don't need glasses yet. Okay. Maybe one day. Okay. I can just increase my font size. <laughs> What's the problem with yeah, that? Yeah, that's
2: the reason it's there, I guess, Hey.
1: Exactly. Right? Who needs glasses? <laughs> Anyways, let's get going on this. So the Miramichi River is in New Brunswick in Canada. It's a beautiful place that's nestled within the picturesque landscape, and it's a haven for fishermen and nature enthusiasts, where a community thrives along the riverbank. Now here, the small community um, has a very nice spirit with camaraderie that thrives within it, because it's like a small town. Things that we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Locals are friendly with one another. Conversations flow effortlessly among the residents, and it's just basically an all-around tight-knit community. I do love that. Those kind of areas are awesome. I yeah. love it too. Now, it's a simpler time in 1989. Innocence like permeated the area. Children rode their bikes along the river's edge. Uh, they hopped onto ferries on their own to traverse across the waters. Oh, wow. Yeah. Keys were left in vehicle ignitions. Car doors were left unlocked and house doors were left unlocked. It was basically just a sanctuary of tranquility sort of thing. So like the fact that we're sitting here saying like, it sounds like a great area. It was. Mm-hmm. That's That's the sum of it not unrecognizable from other stories that we've talked about but there is of course an incident that broke all that a single spoiled or bad apple if you will mm-hmm. yeah so it was on a fateful night of June 21st in 1986 john glending was a 66 year old man who lived in the miramichi area with his wife mary who was 64 now together the two own and ran a local convenience store uh in the Black Ridge area. They were just closing up shop for the night and heading into the residence, which was nestled right beside the store, like same oh, sort of building okay. situation. Yeah. So as they locked up, the lights suddenly went out. It was black inside. Darkness engulfed the entire store. They couldn't see a single thing. And before they could really react, three masked intruders burst in, demanding the couple surrender all of their money. Now, I mean, this is a convenience store, right? They're looking after the money in the till. Yep. Despite John's compliance and disclosure of the safe's location, it proved insufficient for the ruthless trio. Oh, boy. The three men began beating the defenseless couple in a brutal onslaught, leaving them battered and broken. Mary, in her vulnerability... Was ultimately raped as well.
2: Holy shit.
1: Yes. So they did not hold back whatsoever. Not only were they assaulting them in a physical beating manner, but there was a sexual assault.
2: Oh my god! Uh, aspect to this as well. And they're in their 60s. That is just devastating. No one should I ever mean, have to
1: go through that. But yeah. Like,
2: no matter what age. But I'm just like thinking. You're
1: like, much more vulnerable. You know, it's right? like
2: grandparents and like they are almost probably retiring or thinking about it. And
1: yep, geez. Exactly. So. Now, the assailants then callously abandoned the now severely battered and unconscious couple at this point, leaving them for dead. So they expected that's exactly what's going to happen. They're done, right? Mm -hmm. However, miraculously, Mary, though beaten into unconsciousness, managed to claw her way back into a sliver of life and she regained her consciousness. Wow. Her determination to survive led her to crawl to their home, which was like, kind of like beside, above. Like, I'm not sure the exact layout, if the store was specifically below and it's above or combination. Okay. Regardless, she crawled to their home where she managed to pick up a phone and call for help.
2: Jeez, that's freaking incredible.
1: Isn't it? So good on her. She's a total badass. Now, within minutes, the wail of sirens could be heard of the arrival with emergency services. While they managed to save Mary, the cruel reality remained john had already lost his life
2: okay i was thinking that might have happened
1: yeah that's exactly what happened now some eyewitnesses were able to help the authorities the sight of three men hauling a safe and the suspicious amount of money down the road wasn't exactly going to go under the radar very easy so people were able to give a uh, description of the three men and eventually they were apprehended so the trio in question consisted of a 38 year old man by the name of alan Legree. Who was a seasoned figure with a fearsome reputation in the area? And he had two younger accomplices who were in their late teens Todd Machette and Scott Curtis. Though known to the local authorities as petty criminals, they never really crossed the line into murder until now.
2: Until that night.
1: Until yep. now. Yep. Yeah. So the subsequent arrest and trial six months later unveiled that Alan Legree as the apparent ringleader due to his age and experience led the other two boys. Police were already well aware of who he was. And even within the criminal world, Alan himself had a reputation that inspired alleged fear. So his violent tendencies left a mark, establishing him as someone you don't want to mess with. So he's not exactly the The best kind of individual. Yeah.
2: No, I already just like don't like this person whatsoever.
1: And I think he reveled in the fact that people recoiled from him or were fearful of him as well. Probably. Which you'll get a sense of that the farther along we go into this case as well.
2: That's what he strived for,
1: eh? I'll just let that hang out there and just say that. But I'm not going to confirm nor deny. You'll see. Okay. Now, following their conviction for the murder of John... Allen and his cohorts face the consequences of a life sentence, which, fantastic. Good. Go behind bars. I mean, you deserve that. You took someone's life, right? So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now, Allen in particular attempted to appeal, but was unsuccessful. The judicial system deemed prison to be the fitting place for someone of Allen's caliber.
2: Absolutely.
1: Couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. So within the confines of the Atlantic Institution Maximum Security Penitentiary in Renus, Alan found himself confined to the segregation unit. Surprisingly, he turned himself into, from the, in, the terrifying individual that he was known to be, into someone that was rather unexpected. A model prisoner.
2: okay. Yeah, he turned okay. himself
1: into quite the model prisoner. Yes, sir. Thank you, ma'am, sort of thing, while he was behind bars.
2: That's not what I ex- was expecting you to say.
1: No? What'd you expect?
2: That he was going to just be an asshole in there and, like, try to rule the ruse sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised, but what is surprising is he did the exact opposite.
2: Hmm.
1: Now, some guards actually even started to warm up to him a bit, uh, but Warden Don Wheaton, who was in charge of the, uh, the the unit, had some reservations about it. Apparently, he perceived Alan as a man with a jackal and hide personality, to quote okay. him. okay. So he's good, and then he's also got this dark side sort of thing. Yeah. So it depends on really, like, if he likes you or not, I guess you could say is really how his behavior is going to come out.
2: Well, I'm almost wondering too, if he has ulterior
1: motives of sorts. Well, I mean, we kind of already gave that away in the intro a little bit, but we're going to keep moving on.
2: Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Well, I'm just like, how can someone do something so bad and then just all of a sudden be, you know, good in, in, in a different situation, but still there, I just don't buy that. Fair enough. I would have probably come to that conclusion anyway.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, So it seemed that in the controlled environment of the prison, Alan seemed to have recognized that good behavior translated to better treatment from the guards, whether he used it against their will or for his own benefit. Well, we'll talk about that here just, well, right now. (laughs) Um, So now, well, not quite actually just now, but we'll get there. Uh, So now, though, at 38 years old with a life sentence ahead, Alan found himself behind prison walls. And here is where he basically contemplated Now, Alan is, of course, if you can't tell the focus of the story. So before we go any further, let's dive into the history of who he is a bit more, and then we'll dive into what we were just talking about. Okay. So he was born on the ominous Friday the 13th of February in 1948 in the gritty neighborhood of Chatham Head, along the banks of the Miramachi River. Alan Legree was unfortunately born into a world of poverty. Alan's mother, Louise, faced the challenges of single parenthood from a very early age, By the time she was pregnant with Alan, she was already a mother of three. Now, in order to help supplement her already small income, Louise rented out rooms in their family home, inadvertently crossing paths with with Alan's father, one of her renters. And that's how Alan came to be. Mm, Okay. So, however, this was just sort of a fling and the man left Louise as a single mother, now of four, in a neighborhood known for its hardships. Alan's mother continued to rent out rooms in their home, and as such, the family was subject to a lot of people moving in and out, you know, coming in for rent, leaving, whatever the case be. A lot of traffic. Now, this meant in order to make room for renters, Alan had to share a room with his sisters, which led Alan to being subject to the female form from for probably the first time as he could watch his sisters undress when he was young. And eventually he had even begun to masturbate as he watched.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. That's really awkward.
1: Yes, very much so. Ugh. Um, But something as such could attribute to, to a person's personality and how they develop into an adult, which we talk about that a lot in the podcast on individuals' upbringings, what they went through. I mean, not necessarily this in particular, but this sort of trauma in I don't know how to say it properly or nicely, this sort of upbringing. Yeah. That it is it is very traumatic.
2: I know. I see what you mean also. But gosh, that just seems like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like people can also be potentially born a bad apple as well. That's true. Because that just, I don't know.
1: But at a young age, it's hard to tell from right, right from wrong. And if I you guess. don't have anyone to That's to true. tell you otherwise. Yeah. So, and I don't think Alan really had anyone to tell him otherwise. Not that I'm vouching for him. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, I'm playing the devil's advocate here.
2: That's true. And he was kind of living a little bit of a different upbringing. So. Okay.
1: Now in school, Alan was seen as a bright mind with a very promising future, but that was only half of the opinions. Other teachers and peers were not so certain of Alan and had some reservations about him and his true nature, very reminiscent of talking about the warden and the Jekyll and Hyde sort of Mm. behavior.
2: Well, I have my freaking reservations about him as well.
1: (laughs) Well, he is the focus of a true crime podcast, so Mm -hmm. I can't blame you on that. Uh, But when Alan was 15 years old, tragedy would strike and his brother was fatally run over while walking across a local bridge. Instead of finding solace and support from his grieving mother, she often told Alan that it should have been him who died instead.
2: Holy shit.
1: Yeah. That's
2: brutal. Yeah.
1: Not something you go ahead and tell your 15-year-old son.
2: Well, I mean, to A, have to deal with that uh, alone, but then to also have your mom say something like that? Ooh. Yeah. Wow.
1: So, I mean... Yeah, just all around not good.
2: Obviously, he wasn't a favorite of hers.
1: No, clearly not. And Alan was struggling with an impoverished life by now. And now, with his grieving mother, who is constantly berating him regarding his brother's death, Alan made a very pivotal decision at the age of 16. He dropped out of school and left home. Now, he was on his own. He adopted a drifter's lifestyle and began engaging in minor crimes around the Miramachi area. Alan also began to frequent the gym daily, transforming his once scrawny young frame into a very large, muscular, and imposing figure. Mm. The change in his body now matched the size of his attitude and solidified his reputation as an intimidating person in the community on the streets.
2: Okay, so he had a goal. That was his goal.
1: Yeah. Alan was mostly known for, as I already mentioned, kind of petty crimes, primarily involving breaking into homes, pilfering items of... Little material value. However, it was the unsettling manner in which he executed those break-ins that gave his reputation, or gave him, sorry, his reputation, uh, and left the community on edge. See, victims would wake up to the sight of Alan, standing at the foot of their beds, silently watching them.
2: Gosh.
1: If they didn't wake up, however, he would place items on the bed. So that when they woke up, the person would know that someone was there while they were sleeping.
2: <laughs> oh, man. That is just too much. Yeah. Yeah. That's way too much. So he's. That's just the creepiest shit in the world.
1: He's purposefully instilling this fear. Yeah. One particular disturbing incident involved cutting off the underwear from a sleeping female minister.
2: <gasps> wow. Yeah. Okay. I wish I could sleep that well. <laughs> Okay, that's really inappropriate and I'm sorry, but like that's actually- That's a
1: deep sleep. That's
2: a solid sleep right there. That is. But that's also very disturbing. That's very disturbing. That's not okay.
1: No. Uh, So the crimes dominated the front page of the local newspaper, which in turn only fed Alan's appetite for more notoriety and reveling in the fear he instilled in others. He did serve some brief stints in prison for theft, but eventually he found his way to Ottawa, where he began to turn his life around a bit. He worked as a car salesman, got married, and became a father of two. However, he didn't remain very faithful in the marriage, and it ended up in divorce. Alan would return to the life of petty crimes, breaking in and robbing places, you know, the the life he once knew. But this time, he was responsible for murder, which brings us to now.
2: Gosh, it makes it so much worse, too, knowing that he's a father, gosh
1: yeah i i can't imagine anyone wanting their father being responsible for some of those sort of things
2: well yeah like you have two people who are looking up to you because you're in that that what would be the word that authority figure of sorts right and yeah. that's how you're acting gosh
1: <laughs> yeah it's uh not a good good look for any father but no no Alan, though, did not intend to stay here in prison and serve his life sentence that he was delivered with, though. As he sat thinking, he devised a plan and he started secretly collecting his own urine, which he would pour into his ear. Okay. This sounds gross, but I have to hand it to Alan. This is relatively ingenious. As disturbing and as much as I don't like this dude, it's Pretty smart.
2: Well, I'm curious of what that would do, but okay.
1: He knew this would eventually induce an ear infection. And an infection, specifically an infection, would necessitate, necess- <laughs> necessitate, I can't say the word, would require a trip to the hospital. <laughs> Just
2: change the word.
1: Necessitate. That's the word I was trying oh, okay. to say. It would necessitate a trip to the hospital.
2: Really? See, I'm actually surprised by that because I always thought urine was... Kind of sterile, but also I guess it's just creating like a moist environment for your ear, which can't be good.
1: Foreign body, moist. It's, yeah. Oh,
2: gosh.
1: Potentially doing damage because of the ammonia. Who knows? Oh,
2: okay. Right? Interesting.
1: So on May 3rd, 1989, three years into his incarceration, Alan Legree was escorted from the Atlantic Institution to Georgia L. Dunmont Regional Hospital by two guards. However, Alan had meticulously prepared for this very moment. Concealed in a cigarette was a lock pick that would provide a crucial tool in executing his escape. In the back of the police cruiser en route to the hospital, Alan managed to unlock his handcuffs and shackles, but left them still on, mm. appearing as if they were still secured. Once he was moved inside the hospital, he continued to be his model prisoner self. Remember, he's been a model prisoner for the past three years, which he used to his advantage. While one guard was occupied signing him in at the reception area, Alan persuaded the other guard to allow him to use the restroom. They've always been able to trust Alan. Why not now?
2: Like, well, I mean, he's kind of in a different environment. I don't think that they should totally have trusted him. Understandable,
1: understandable. But this was granted without a second thought. The guard stood outside the bathroom door as Alan was now alone inside. He then removed his handcuffs and shackles and retrieved a concealed TV antenna from a uh, body cavity. Okay. (laughs) Then Alan called out to the officer asking for toilet paper. So he opened the door and immediately he saw the shackles in the garbage can. And in that instant, Alan Attacked him. Oh, man. He used the antenna as an improvised weapon, and then he got past the guard and made his escape outside the hospital. Despite the guard's attempts to apprehend him, Alan was successful, and he was now standing out in the hospital parking lot. Huh.
2: I mean, he's not stupid.
1: He's, he's, he's got some wits to him. I'll give him that. Like I said, he was, it was very ingenious to start pouring his own piss into his ear. I'll give him that. Gross. Yes, but hey, it worked.
2: Well, I mean, I guess he's also had a lot of time on his hands to think this stuff through too, right?
1: I have a feeling he was in that cell thinking over this plan since day one.
2: Yeah. So I mean, after three years, anyone should probably have a pretty good plan if they've thought it through for that long. Yeah, I would
1: hope so. (laughs) But he's now in the parking lot and here he encountered a woman by the name of Peggy Olive, who was an outpatient and she was in her car, about to drive away from the hospital. With the antenna sharpened, he pressed it against her neck. Scared and feeling the sense of pure evil, as so she claims, she pleaded to be let go, but Alan did not oblige. Instead, he forced her to drive, and so she did. Peggy noted that Alan's demeanor kept switching as she sped off, from being polite to almost charming to angry and terrifying. Which, to me, almost points towards a true psychopath. Mm-hmm. She felt as though as she was confined inside the car with a ticking time bomb, unsure of when his temperament would shift again. Then, all of a sudden, Alan ordered the car to stop and he forced Peggy to get out onto the side of the road. Wasting no time, she happily jumped out and then he drove away.
2: Oh, okay. That's good. That's probably the best way that could have
1: ended for her. Definitely. Because, I mean, it's just a car. It's just a possession can be Mm -hmm. replaced, but she got away uninjured. I mean, she might have a little bit of trauma, you know, PTSD or something like that, but she is physically okay. But before he drove away, this this is really weird. He bizarrely assured her that he wouldn't damage her car.
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: He's like, your car will be fine. Don't worry. I won't, wow. I won't, I won't damage anything. I'm
2: pretty sure that's probably not what she was worried about at that moment. I don't
1: think so either. But, uh, her car was later found abandoned on the outskirt of Moncton and staying true to his promise. The car remained unharmed.
2: Oh man, that gives me mixed emotions, but I still, I'm still not a fan.
1: It plays right into that Jekyll and Hyde thing. Yeah. Right. Is sure he does. good? Is he bad? Is He's charming. He's evil. There's these two flip sides to whoever Alan Legree is. Mm-hmm. So... Now, the authorities were immediately on a manhunt to find and track down Alan. This dude just escaped a life sentence, and he had already, I mean, he killed before, and now he's already hijacked a car, though thankfully he hasn't hurt anyone yet. Um, He's still considered dangerous. Helicopters, roadblocks, and trained dogs were sent out in search of him, but it seemed like he had just vanished. They suspected that he had fled to a large city like Montreal or Halifax to avoid being recognized and was now in hiding. But, a few days later, there seemed to be an upsurge in reports of a prowler in the northern area along the banks of the Miramachi River. Authorities suspected that Alan was uh, stealthily stalking the region under the cover of night.
2: Oh, okay. So he did stay.
1: Yep. Oh,
2: huh, I wonder where he was hiding then.
1: Probably just in the bush.
2: I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Soon, residents began finding that someone had broken into their homes. Food and various random items were missing and things were being left out of place. But the means of entry was always unclear. Then one night, a woman alone with her children while her husband was working night shift, saw a man try to break into her home. And the man, realizing that he had been seen, ran off. And as he ran off, apparently he had smashed a window on his way by. Just kind of like as a flipping the bird, like Like a screw you. Yeah. Yeah. So the town was not just suspicious that the intruder was Alan, they were now terrified that he had returned to wreak havoc and vengeance on the town that he despised, the one that had him arrested and incarcerated.
2: Yeah, but I was going to say too, a lot of them, um, the houses and stuff, they might've been easy to get into because you kind of had chatted at one point that people didn't necessarily lock their doors or whatever, right? Yeah. So I feel like it might not have been
1: super hard. I do imagine that now that there's, Break ins and stuff happening, and this individual on the loose, I think people would start locking their doors. Well,
2: yeah, yeah. N- but maybe not so much at the beginning.
1: No, definitely. Yeah. There's always a, a turning point, and whether this occurred, uh, al- where this occurred along that turning point, is a big factor. You're right. Now, four days after Alan's escape, a man fell victim to a brutal attack, being beaten, tied up, and robbed by a masked intruder. Though the victim's wallet and car were later found, the assailant did get away. Three weeks later, Another resident, Joe Irving, fell prey to a burglary where $100 worth of meat from his freezer and duffel bag were stolen. In close proximity to Joe's house stood Flam's grocery store, a local landmark run by Annie Flam for the past 50 years. Annie, affectionately known as everybody's grandmother, was a beloved figure in the community. You good?
2: Yeah, I'm just worried about this. (laughs)
1: Okay, yeah. Um, The grocery store was open seven days a week. She lived this grocery store. This was what she did. It was not only a business hub for friendly chats with customers, Annie's sister-in-law, Nina Flam, lived in the second apartment upstairs from the store. On May 29th, 1989, Annie locked up the store at 11 p.m. Heading into the hallway with connecting doors to the store, her townhouse and Nina's townhouse laid waiting. Just before 4 a.m., a passerby observed smoke emanating from the Flam's grocery store. Harry Preston rushed to the scene, pounded on the door, and a passing police car noticed the flames alerted the fire department. Upon arriving, officers broke down the back door and discovered a badly injured Nina Flam at the bottom of the stairs partially clothed and barely conscious. Officer Dan Pugh wrapped his jacket around her and urgently called for an ambulance. Nina was rushed to the hospital. Firefighters battled the blaze at the Flams grocery store, desperately searching for Annie. After gaining control over the fire, they discovered Annie's charred body on her bed, where only the springs and bed frame remained.
2: Dang. And sorry, Annie wasn't the one that owned it, right? Nina was.
1: Uh, sorry, Annie was the one that owned it. Oh,
2: Annie owned it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, not like that. It matters which one, but still, geez. Yeah.
1: No, Nina was her sister-in-law.
2: Yeah. Okay. Oh, that is devastating for the community. And you think that this guy would have known them too, right? You know.
1: Very good chance. Huh. <sighs> Now, the petite Annie was, would stand only about five feet tall and was tragically burnt, of course, beyond recognition. Yet the injuries sustained by both Annie and Nina went beyond the effects of the fire. Signs of severe beatings were also present. The fire also seemed strategically set as most likely a means of to, con- to conceal evidence. Nina Flam thankfully managed to fight for her life and live to recount the grim details of that fateful Sunday night, and it occurred as such. Around 9.30 p.m., she'd gone upstairs, made some coffee, and had a snack. I just want to point out 9.30 p.m. is really late for a coffee.
2: Maybe it was decaf. It
1: might have been. It might right, have been. Because that went
2: through my mind too. But some people, it affects them. Yep. It doesn't affect them.
1: It doesn't affect me very much. I'm not judging. It's just surprising. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyways, Annie joined her at approximately 10.30 p.m. And they engaged in conversation be- before Annie went back to the shop to lock up for the night. She then went to bed around 11 p or 11 p.m., settled in with a book for a read. Her daughter had just called and she, as she got into bed and then she had, they had a brief conversation together. She hung up and then Nina continued reading before she fell asleep. Later that night, as Nina slept with her back to the bedroom door, she was startled awake by the sound of footsteps on the stairs. It was then that a masked man entered, covered her mouth and uttered the words, quote, don't make a noise and I won't hurt you.
2: Oh boy.
1: He then began tying Nina's feet and hands together and covered her eyes with a pillow. The man identified himself as Gerald and began to search Nina's house for valuables. Throughout this unsettling ordeal, he circled back to her, engaging in conversation, talking about how he'd drank some whiskey, and then he questioned Nina about her employment at the liquor store. He also inquired about her daughter, who had visited over the weekend and departed that morning for Halifax. He also mentioned seeing her daughter— With her high school boyfriend in Chatham during the weekend, this Gerald clearly knew Nina and her family, or at Mm -hmm. least had some familiarity with them.
2: Yep. I kind of already said that, didn't I?
1: You did. Yeah. He then, holding a knife up to Nina, began demanding to know where she stored the cash from the grocery store. In response, Nina truthfully disclosed that there was no money in the house except for $60 in her purse. But this didn't make man very happy. And he began beating Nina in the face. He asked again, where is the money? But Nina just didn't know. She said that Annie typically deposited the money in the bank during the week. But being that this was a Sunday, the banks were closed. And the money from the day must be somewhere.
2: Okay.
1: The tension in the room escalated as Nina continued to get beaten for a question she just could not answer. Finally, the man said, If you don't tell me where the money is, I will rape you. But she could only tell him of the $60 in her purse. So the man followed through with his threat and raped Nina. As he did, he yelled at her, almost taking out anger and venting as doing so, saying, quote, You rich people, you think you have everything your way. During this horrific act, he also asked her about her husband, Bernie. He also called her by her name, Mrs. Bernie. Also, again, showing personal knowledge. Afterwards, the man still demanded to know where the money was, but she told him the same thing as before. She just doesn't know. The man was furious. So, he raped her again.
2: Oh, my gosh. Where's her husband, then?
1: I'm not too sure.
2: Okay. Gosh.
1: Yep. Yeah. When the man was finished, he bizarrely tucked Nina into bed, Ugh. cutting the ties around her hands, then began choking her. In a desperate bid for survival, Nina pretended to die. She pretended to be unconscious, which thankfully worked. The man then set the mattress ablaze with the now, so he thought, deceased woman aboard, and the fire took over the house as he left.
0: Hmm.
1: As flames rapidly spread, Nina managed to untie her feet and descend the stairs. Her memory is foggy on this part, but she remembers persisting pounding coming from the door and a police officer wrapping a jacket around her. She ended up being hospitalized from May to September that year with 40% of her body suffering third-degree burns. The assailant had subjected Annie Flam to a similar routine, evident from the injuries and position on the bed. Nina, while talking to police, was able to provide a very crucial detail from the assault. The attacker had worn a chain around his waist, one that to police sounded like a prisoner's waist chain, something that is very challenging to remove without the appropriate tools.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. I would have thought by that point, though, he would have had that removed.
1: One would think, but apparently not.
2: Okay, I have just a couple things to say here. Okay,
1: what are the couple things you got?
2: First of all, I think, I, I thought at first, oh my goodness, like it's weird that Nina was able to get away, but Annie was deceased. But then you said that he did the same thing, which is just horrifying. Yeah. Um, and then I hate that statement where he's like, you rich people, like what a fucking asshole. Yeah. Because they work really hard. To get to where they are and their money and stuff.
1: years that grocery store was yeah. open. Seven days a week it was open.
2: So it's like uh, maybe they have – And it doesn't come across like they're super well off or whatever. Like they just seem like they're people that are like working pretty hard. and Yeah. that is – That just like – I mean the whole thing just infuriates me. But gosh, what a piece.
1: Ugh. A piece of what? Shit. <laughs> a big tell. old
2: piece of shit. Like wow. I really am not – Enjoying this dude.
1: We're gonna be putting these on YouTube. You can't be swearing so much. No, I'm just kidding.
2: Well, it's hard not to. (laughs) We're
1: still gonna be us. Don't worry. It's hard not
2: to when we're talking about someone like this dude. I can't even remember what the hell his name is at this point, which is fine by me. But ugh,
1: ugh, indeed. I mean, of course, they were almost certain that. Alan is the perpetrator, yet maintaining an open mind, they acknowledge the possibility of other suspects, recognizing the need for a very thorough investigation. Okay. So props to the RCMP for not just tunnel vision and they're doing their job properly. Props to them on that. Absolutely. Uh, Now, there was actually some jailbreaks that had actually struck the area recently, some other ones aside from Alan. Two brothers, David and John, uh, had escaped prison just a week prior to the the crime, which was approximately uh, 165 kilometers south of Chatham. So that's where they escaped, that far away. Um, but both the brothers, along with Alan, all of them were prime suspects now.
2: Mm-hmm. They weren't
1: just narrowing it down to Alan. They're like, okay, there's other possibilities.
2: Hmm. I'm kind of happy that doesn't happen anymore. Well, I mean, I'm. it sure does it occasionally, but... That's a lot of jailbreaks in a pretty small period of time. Yeah.
1: No, I think that they really needed to have looked at uh, what's going on with the jailbreaks and why there's so many. So I'm pretty sure that they did and they've corrected that since. Now, in the following days, a landscaper discovered a pair of men's glasses with a smoky gray tint near the site of a recent sighting and a brief pursuit as well. The police determined that the glasses were prescription lenses and they had actually managed to match a pair of these prescription lenses, to a pair prescribed to Alan Legree during his time in prison, mm,
2: and they were they had been like some smoke damage
1: to them. No, just like a smoky gray tint.
2: Oh, like tinted lenses. Oh, okay, I see. No. I see.
1: Uh, so, meanwhile, forensics were actually also on the hot on a trail of some evidence as well. They managed to uncover a hair that did not belong to either Nina or Annie Flam from the crime scene. And given the sexual assault on Nina, they were also able to obtain a DNA sample. However, the DNA science in 1989 was in its infancy stages, and the necessary testing facilities, such as a laboratory in Ottawa, were still under construction. So testing was currently unable to be done, but they did have the DNA.
2: Okay. Hmm.
1: Now, despite these limitations... The RCMP still collected hair and saliva samples from everyone they interviewed to ensure thoroughness so that if the point does come where they can test DNA, they can cross examine and make sure, okay, this person isn't it, This person doesn't it. Oh, here's a match. You know, that sort of thing. Good
2: for them. They're doing a good job. They're
1: doing one hell of a job on this case. Now, by the end of June, Though those two brothers who had escaped prison were now apprehended and subsequently ruled out as suspects as they were found in a hunting camp um, near Harcourt area in the south of Chatham. An extensive questioning eliminated them as suspects, but uh, in both Nina and Annie's assault. So they're out of the question. They were still detained, faced charges for being unlawfully at large. But as July unfolded, the leads in the investigation began to grow cold prompting speculation about the possibility that the culprit had moved to another location with the passage of time though, this meant some DNA testing labs were achieving completion and the investigators managed to successfully obtain a comprehensive DNA profile linking both hair and semen samples to blood found on a knife that Alan had wielded during a prison attack. Wow. So they matched the hair and semen sample to DNA from while Alan was in prison.
2: Huh. Okay. Good.
1: This confirmed that Alan Legree was indeed the perpetrator they had been seeking. Mm-hmm. In September, Morrissey Doran, a 70-year-old resident, was shot in the back in his home when he encountered an intruder. The following day, An armed assailant invaded another home, assaulting elderly couple Edwin and Evangeline Russell. Friday the 13th of October 1989 arrived with a full moon. Lindsay Dotney, a 41-year-old resident, headed to the local Tim Hortons to meet a friend for coffee. How Canadian, right? Yeah. Linda shared her home with her sister Donna in a quiet corner of Newcastle. Although they mostly kept to themselves, the sisters were well-known and well-liked in the neighborhood. That night... 45-year-old Donna stayed home, painting her window. A neighbor actually spotted her painting the window still at 10, 15 p.m. and waved to Donna and then went to bed. Little did Linda know that, this, that as she returned from her coffee date around 11 p.m., someone was waiting for her inside her home. She approached her front door and she was suddenly struck in the head and dragged inside her own home.
2: Jeez, this guy's pure evil
1: yeah, he is. Ugh. What took place that night mirrored the same horrifying torture that Annie and Nina Flam uh, endured. And once again, Flame soon engulfed the home. This time, however, first responders were too late. Linda and Donna Dotney had already fallen victim to a brutal murder. Both sisters were discovered in an upstairs bedroom when signs of sexual assault, beating, and severe burns were found. The fire was not the cause of their death, though. Blunt force trauma and strangulation were determined as a primary factor. Linda, with a broken jaw, succumbed to asphyxiation after choking on her own vomit induced by severe pain.
2: Jeez.
1: Yeah. I can't imagine being in so much pain that you puke and drowned on your own vomit.
2: This guy is just a complete monster.
1: Yeah. Now you know why he's... Known as the monster of Miramichi.
2: yeah, I guess so. Holy heck. I just can't believe the just like brutality to his his attacks and his crimes and everything. Like how terrifying to be in that area at that time.
1: Yeah. Now authorities hit another interesting piece of information actually though with this part, with this case. Linda actually had a past relationship with Alan. Yeah. What? Which could have potentially been why she was targeted.
2: Wow. Ugh.
1: By now, though, Allen had been able to evade police on the run for a total of six months. Wow. And it was beginning to arouse suspicions that someone might be helping Alan, perhaps housing him or even aiding in the assaults. This, of course, was just speculation, mm-hmm. but it was a very real possibility. The community was now fully paralyzed by fear, and they took extensive precautions. Those living alone, particularly elderly citizens, sought refuge with neighbors or family. They acquired firearms and guard dogs and petitioned for increase in streetlights. Floodlights were consistently being installed to illuminate homes at night in their yard, earning them the moniker Legree Lights police checkpoints manned by black-suited members of the RCMP emergency response team armed with guns, large vans, and helicopters even became a common sight in the once quaint and quiet community.
2: Jeez, I just sad.
1: flipped it.
2: Yeah. Huh. Now,
1: Halloween was approaching. Normally, it was a pretty awesome time of year. I love Halloween. I'm pretty sure many people who listen to our podcast love Halloween. We do a mm-hmm. big event on Halloween here in the podcast, but even still, events were happening in Miramichi. You know, there's candy, there's kids trick-or-treating, fireworks, decorations, haunted houses. Socializing. Name. Socializing. A lot Equal of people out
2: late. Definitely.
1: Yeah. But this time around, with Alan on the loose, it felt like everyone was living in a more real-life nightmare than a whimsical Halloween. Mm-hmm. The fears that he might actually the fears that he was gonna like put on a costume and blend into the crowds oh, was a very real gosh. situation yeah yeah wearing masks as he was just walking with children who knows maybe taking children or doing God knows what um it was horrifying everyone and just days before Halloween on October 28th two guns were stolen from a truck in Chatham raising concerns that Legree had now really armed himself mm-hmm. the community made the unprecedented decision to cancel Halloween celebrations officially. This man fucking canceled Halloween.
2: Jeez, imagine trying to explain that to your kid, hey? No
1: kidding. Now, there were some parties that were organized during the daytime um, for kids and stuff like that, but, I mean, the atmosphere was far from typical.
2: They're not like, oh, trick-or-treating. Exactly. Which is kind of like the main cool thing that all the kids are excited about.
1: Yeah, I have a feeling it would have been, like even covid I don't think would have impact Halloween the same as this. Yeah. Because I think COVID kids can wrap their mind around, you know, sick and we can still <sighs> go out and go to family and friends or whatever and social distance and that sort of thing. But this is just no, you're not leaving the house.
2: Well, yeah. You're it's there because there's a huge aspect of terror yeah. to it as well.
1: Why can't I go trick-or-treating mom? Because you might die. Like, what? Are you Ooh. kidding me?
2: Yeah. I mean, I wonder how many people would be watching horror movies that night, eh?
1: No kidding. Uh now police later even received a sighting report and pursued Allen into the woods near a residential area. Uh in the encounter Allen who by now was very familiar with the woods around Miramichi, um not only from his upbringing but also from running around in them in the past 6 months, um shot at officers, but luckily no one was injured. On November 15th in the late afternoon around 5:30 p.m., a local high school student dropped off a letter for Father James Smith. Now, Father Smith was seen eating an early dinner, and everything appeared normal. However, by 9 p.m., a member of the congregation observed Father Smith on the porch of his house, looking around as if he'd seen something or heard something. This, little did anyone know, would be the last time anyone would see Father Smith alive. The following evening, on November 16th, people gathered for the evening mass, expecting Father Smith to lead as usual. However, he was late, and he didn't show up. Concerned by his uncharacteristic tardiness, around 7.15, two men volunteered to check in on Father Smith at the rectory next door. What they discovered was a gruesome and horrifying scene. Father Smith lay dead next to a safe in the hall. It was obvious that he had endured a long and brutal attack, and the use of torture was evident. Father Smith's jaw was broken and his throat was cut. Both sides of his body had broken ribs, and in a post-mortem examination, it was deemed to have been done with such force that the coroner concluded someone must have jumped onto his chest while he was laying on the floor, shattering his chest bone and ribs.
2: Wow. Jeez.
1: What a piece of shit. Absolute
2: Totally. And the fact that he's just targeting elderly people is just beyond disgusting. Yeah.
1: he's tar- tar- And not only um, elderly people, but now he's going after a member of the church like that. Like yeah. people who won't fight back. Yeah. Hmm. In the aftermath of the assault, this time, though the killer didn't torch the house, instead he seemed to have stuck around for a little while. He ate at Father Smith's house, washed his boots, put plastic bread bags uh, into his boots as well to keep his feet dry, changed clothes and placed the bloody ones in another bag. He nonchalantly answered the phone with a dismissive wrong number, oh. then hotwired father Smith's 1984 Oldsmobile Delta 88 and drove away.
2: Wow. Yes. Just while he's laying there, like passed away. Yes. Oh, wow. You good? I don't know. <laughs> that is not Okay.
1: Well, there was, there's a silver lining to everything. And though, I mean, of course we have someone's who's lost their life, but there was a piece of evidence that was left behind, which is the silver lining here. Another piece of evidence that could be tying potentially Alan Legree to another murder, a bloody footprint on a church magazine. So if they can find him, they might be able to match his footprint, tying him to the scene.
2: But I also feel like at this point, they would have just enough to lock him up forever, right? Yeah. I mean, it's good that they're like gathering more evidence and stuff, but it's just, I don't know, that it just makes me sad.
1: No, I agree. Now, Father Smith's car was quickly discovered at a motel in Bathurst, approximately 55 miles or 90 kilometers away. It was parked near a train station. Oh. The priest's jacket and a pair of boots matching the bloody imprints left at the scene were also found. Okay. Police rushed to the nearby train station in hopes that they weren't too late to catch the individual as they were boarding. Mm-hmm. Now, lucky, luckily, the via rail agent confirmed selling a ticket for a trip to Montreal at the eight eight twenty-eight PM train to a man who fit Alan's description. Okay. The man identified himself as Fernand Sovi of Bucci. Police boarded that 828 train, found the man, and they asked him to roll up his sleeve on his right forearm. Because Alan had a very distinctive eagle tattoo on his right forearm. He rolled up the sleeve and there was no tattoo.
2: What the shit?
1: There was no tattoo on the right forearm. I
2: for sure thought that, that was they were going to get him at this point.
1: Well, unfortunately, they didn't have him, and they left the train, and the train departed as per usual. Unfortunately, the police made an error. The error lay in the details. Alan's tattoo was on his left forearm.
2: Oh my gosh, are you kidding me?
1: Not the right. If they had this man roll up his other sleeve, they would have found the eagle tattoo because they were talking to alan Legree. he just oh, slipped through their fingers
2: my gosh you have to be kidding me nope and this freaking dude just like played it cool yeah and just like rolled up his other sleeve like it was just like whatever
1: they asked him to roll up his right sleeve oh, so he rolled up his right sleeve
2: that is infuriating to me oh you're got to be kidding there has to have been other details but okay okay Wow. I'm pissed.
1: Yeah. So, under the alias Fernand Souvi, Alan had successfully made it to Montreal and checked into the Queen Elizabeth Hotel near the train station.
2: Laughing his ass off, really.
1: Probably. And he now had money. He had money in his pocket, he had newfound freedom. But for some reason, it wasn't enough for him, and he felt the need to return to the Miramichi area.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. Don't know why. Okay. Well, we might know why, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. On November 23rd, Ron Gomke, a taxi driver in St. John, gave a ride to Alan. Alan told Ron to drive him 110 miles to Moncton. That was a ways away. Mm-hmm. And so he contacted dispatch and he told Alan that the estimate from dispatch was about $100, $100 for cab fare. In that instant, Ron found himself star- staring down the barrel of a three o eight hunting rifle. He had little choice but but to comply to Alan. As Alan told him, quote, tell them you have the fare. I'm the one they're looking for. I'm Alan Legree.
2: Oh, jeez. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. This guy, he just is like... A monster. Yeah, and just the fear that he just... I don't know.
1: Well, as he drove, Ron actually thought about crashing the car purposely into the ditch.
2: Mm, Okay. But
1: before he could act, and I'm unsure of why, a struggle erupted between the two of them in the car. This struggle mixed with icy roads and the conditions sent the car careening into the ditch with Alan keeping Ron as hostage. Determined to continue his journey, Alan now flagged down another car. This one just so happened to be driven by an off-duty police officer by the name of Michelle Mercer. Alan quickly took control and ordered Michelle to drive to Moncton. As they neared Sussex, a town between Moncton and St. John, Michelle told Alan that they were running out of gas. I'm unsure if that was a fib or not. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just assume that they were running out of gas because okay. I would I would guess that Alan would check. It could look. Yeah. So I'm going to assume. but. She told them that they were running out of gas, and this prompted them to stop at a Four Corners Irving gas station and convenience. Once they stopped, Alan took Michelle's keys and money, concealed his gun in a plastic bag, and he alone went inside to pay for gas. However, Alan wasn't aware that Michelle had a spare key with her. Oh. And she seized the opportunity as Alan was pumping gas. So I believe she probably was out of gas, waited for Alan to pump some gas, get them filled. And then she started the car and took off, leaving Alan behind at the gas station. And she fled to the nearest phone to call police.
2: Wow. Awesome.
1: So good on Michelle for that. Yeah. Yeah. Alan wasn't deterred though. He was on a mission to return to Miramichi. So he quickly hopped into the cab of a truck driven by Brian Golding, which was en route to Montreal from Halifax. He got in the truck and said, quote, come on, I'm Alan Legree and we are leaving.
2: Oh, <sighs> geez. See a and theme that, here? That name would, wouldn't be known.
1: Oh, probably it's holding weight Yeah. And he knows it. Yeah. He's loving it.
2: Uh oh, he's loving the power.
1: He is the fear that he's instilling the power that his name has. He's like, that's me. It's like, you better do as I say. He's he's a monster. He's a piece of shit. Yeah. yeah. However, it didn't take long for authorities to catch up with Alan in the truck. But still, for 30 minutes, a cat and mouse chase ensued with Alan demanding Brian keep driving while he's holding him at gunpoint. Eventually though, police finally managed to stop the truck and Brian, seizing the moment, flung open the door and shouted, it's him, it's him, he has a gun. Alan didn't put up a fight like expected though. He simply stepped out of the truck and surrendered without a fight.
2: Huh, okay, that's surprising. Because he seemed like such a mission to get back there that he had like unfinished business or something.
1: Yeah, but he didn't put up a fight at all. And as he was being arrested, Alan reportedly uttered, I could have done this. I could have done that. Like, you know, different things. Uh, I could have done this. I could have done that. I'm Alan Legree.
2: Oh my gosh. That's not anything to be proud of. No. At all. But
1: he certainly was.
2: Oh, gosh.
1: It seems like he really got wrapped up in the fear that instilled all the residents of Miramichi. And I think that's exactly why he was returning because he was something. Uh, He was something there. You know what I mean?
2: He liked that.
1: When he left, he was just. Now this other dude that he was under this alias, he's just a nobody again. But he liked being something and someone.
2: And kind of bringing that fear to the whole community. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Despite his notoriety, though, the media portrayed him as a weakling to which Alan reported, If I'm so chicken and dumb, why couldn't over 100 of Canadian of Canada's finest with dogs and SWAT teams find little old moi? They were trying.
2: Oh, and
1: they did. <laughs> they did fucking find you.
2: him. Yeah, they did.
1: Yeah. No matter how he viewed himself, he proved to be a coward at heart. And he looked back at his victims. They were never individuals who were stronger than him. Instead, he preyed upon those defenseless against him. Ones that wouldn't fight back or couldn't fight back. As Alan awaited trial, he found himself con- confined to the York County jail. The prison went a good length, to ensure that Alan didn't escape again. Good. And a prison guard by the name of Paul Wayne Stewart had this to say about the precautions that they took. Quote, we had him down in segregation in the basement with two cameras in his cell. Two officers sat outside that particular area and monitored the cameras with and him 24 hours a day the whole time he was there.
2: <laughs> they were not letting him get away again, hey?
1: No. His quote continues to say. The cell door was never opened unless there were two sheriffs, two correctional officers, and two to three RCMP officers present. And he was always handcuffed and shackled because the word was, if he escaped, then don't come to work on Monday because you won't have a job.
2: Oh boy. Hey. Yeah.
1: No kidding. <laughs> uh, in August, yeah. 1990, Allen was faced with convictions related to his escape then a year later, in August of 1991, he stood trial on four accounts of murder where uh, there were concerns that a local jury, in Michi, might actually be impartial. Uh, so due to this, they, the trial took place elsewhere, which, I mean, fair enough. It's supposed to be an impartial jury.
2: Yeah, but like, okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, they began with uh, traditional forensic evidence. A foot cast of Alan's foot demonstrated that he wore the boots responsible for the imprints on the church rectory magazine um, bearing Father Smith's blood. Nina Flam bravely testified in recounting wow. the horrifying details of her attack. Although she couldn't definitively identify her assailant, it was evident that he was a local man familiar with her and her family. Her testimony deeply affected the courtroom, but Alan remained emotionless.
2: Well, yeah, because he's a monster.
1: Yep. The trial then introduced DNA evidence, which at the time was very groundbreaking. Um, It was a new use of forensic science in Canada and in, in the courts. So they employed experts to explain the science behind what was commonly referred to as DNA fingerprinting. In this case, DNA from the semen and hair samples at the crime scene matched Allen's DNA. The testing indicated a match that only 1 in 310 million of the Caucasian population could share. Now, in 1991, Canada's entire population was just over 28 million. Making the 1 in 310 million DNA match statistically compelling. Yeah. The chances of anyone other than Alan being the the assailant were virtually non-existent.
2: Huh. Good for them for even, because it was a new thing, right? They could have not even bothered to collect or, or hold on to all those things. But like, I feel like that's super smart and just thinking ahead that they did.
1: Oh, definitely. And when they were in the court, they played their cards right. They didn't come out swinging with the DNA evidence. They brought everything else that the court is normally used to hearing first. Here's this normal evidence. Here's this normal evidence. Here's this normal evidence. All these things. And now we're finishing it off with the new evidence. Yeah.
2: With a big boom, hey?
1: So it's instead of like, here's this new fandangled stuff that people are like, oh, what's this? You're just starting with this? No, you warmed up and you're already saying, look at all this evidence. Now on top of all of it, here's some new evidence. that is coming out with this DNA fingerprinting. Yeah. So on November 3rd, 1991, the jury delivered guilty verdicts on all four accounts of murder. Alan Legree received a life sentence with 25 years without the possibility of parole. Addressing the jury, Dave justice, David Dickinson stated quote, I don't usually comment on verdicts, but let me say this. Don't lose too much sleep over your verdict. Addressing the jury, right?
2: Yeah. Well, because that's why I was like, I think anywhere that he would have had his trial would have probably come out with this outcome.
1: Yeah. He is currently housed in the Edmonton Institution and Alan faces disdain from fellow inmates who condemn criminals victimizing women or children. While behind bars, though, there was an interesting incident regarding Alan. A retired RCMP officer, Officer Mason Johnson was consulted when Allen had his TV confiscated from him, but demanded that it be returned. Officer Johnson uh, had his spider senses go off. They were tingling, and he questioned the guards who claimed to have thoroughly searched said TV. But Johnson insisted, if Allen wanted that TV back, there had to be something hidden inside of it. His spider sense? Proved correct, officials re-examined the TV, and discovered a set of handcuff keys concealed inside.
2: Oh, jeez!
1: So he was clearly trying it again.
2: Yeah, he was going to try it again.
1: As such, the fear persists that Alan Legree might one day devise another escape plan. But until then, the residents of Miramichi find solace in the hopes that their boogeyman, their monster, remains securely. Behind bars.
2: Oh my gosh. So he's like still alive. Yes. Okay. And he's very <laughs> close to us, really. And he's so
1: one one province over. That's just He's an eight-hour drive away.
2: Very unsettling. I don't know why, but I just for some reason didn't expect him to be alive anymore.
1: No, he still is. But <sighs> he's rotting away. Yeah, but thankfully. It,
2: he's still like those gears are still turning for him to try to, you know. Still get out and, he's and live a life. To. He's not oh, going to. Oh gosh. There's
1: no way. There is absolutely no way he's getting out.
2: No, no, no. And, and I feel like too, I mean the the law enforcement has only gotten like better with time and have new tactics and.
1: Same and with stuff, the prison so. security and everything. Yeah. There's not a chance.
2: Yeah. Not okay. a chance.
1: He's locked up. Wow. Yeah.
2: Jeez. <laughs> That is a freaking story.
1: That is the monster of Miramichi. And hopefully you guys, I don't know if you check this out on video, it's going to be posted not the day we drop the audio podcast. It will be dropped a few days after, maybe up to a week later, because we, we need time to edit it. Um, also, one of the cameras stopped working mid-podcast. It did. So <laughs> Nicole's angle for about half the podcast is missing, but uh, we will be, we have two other angles going on still. So we well, have the main and... One on me.
2: Of course, there'd be some kinks on the, the
1: oh, first one, you know? There's going to be many kinks to work out as as this yeah. uh, progresses. But we thank you guys for listening. Thank you for checking it out. If you are heading over to check it out, we have a YouTube link down below. We actually have two YouTube channels now. We have Wicked Life, which is housing our vlogs, tiny home living, just our lifestyle fun stuff, separate from Wicked and Grim. But we do have a Wicked and Grim YouTube channel where this will specifically be posted. Yeah. Both links are down in the description of this podcast.
2: But if you look at that... One YouTube link right away. There'll be nothing on there. Correct. It will be a couple days later.
1: So. Correct. Yeah. Until, until we have one uploaded. Yeah. So
2: I'm shocked that I had have not heard of this story.
1: It's a Canadian one too.
2: Yeah. Like whoa, it's wild. Whoa, it's wild. Whoa, it's just wild. I like
1: how you added that emphasis on the age. The whoa, huh?
2: The well wild. Done. Good job presenting it as per
1: usual. I don't know. I did feel a little like more nervous presenting it. I don't know if you guys could tell. You did at first, especially. With with the cameras on me. I don't know. It added this extra layer of pressure. (laughs) It was weird.
2: When it's weird, because usually I'm like the weird one on camera. And it didn't affect me as much as it affected you, I don't think, this time.
1: No. Well, I think I've got like... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm like invested and I want this to work. And it's yeah. not like I'm nervous to be in front of it. I'm just like, oh, like I'm distracted. Is everything going okay? Like, is, is the camera working? Is the audio, like, how's the angle? Like those just other things are going on in my head.
2: Well, and it's harder presenting too, right? Like I yeah. just sit here, chill and listen to a story.
1: Yeah. Blowing your nose every time we had to, <laughs> to like stop for a or second. Coughing, yeah.
2: yeah. And then I came back with a cough candy and I was like, Oh, yeah. This yeah. isn't going to work.
1: Yeah. Not on a <laughs> podcast. Probably not.
2: <laughs> but I'm going to pop that in my mouth right now.
1: Fair enough. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And if you're watching this when it's released, thank you very much for watching. We appreciate you for tuning in. All the links for our podcast are down below. You can check out Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or I guess it's called X now. I keep calling it Twitter.
2: Oh, geez. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, Both YouTubes. We got, we got all the stuff. Website. It's there. Merch. Merch. We got a
2: lot of things. Yeah.
1: All the links are down there. If you want to join us on Patreon, you can go ahead and check that out. We can get the good old behind the scenes. And they are actually technically getting the very first episode of um, the video podcast. Because we do a uh, a pre show once a month. Oh
2: yeah, and that's going to be on video. We did that on video. We
1: we did our pre show on video, so that'll be going up on Patreon.
2: I don't know why that didn't dawn (laughs) on (laughs) me.
1: Yeah, they're technically getting the very first one. That was the the pilot episode, if you will.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah.
1: So, anyways, thank you guys so much for being here. We appreciate it, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you later. And until then,
2: stay wicked.